I got a very important question to ask you two guys, okay? What do you call an elf who sings? Snelf. Okay, I got Snelf. Nothing? Uh, nothing. Come on, man. It's so easy. A rapper. Oh. <laughs> You're listening to Coding Box, episode 20. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, more using your favorite podcast app. And visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and more. And send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net and follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links at the top of the page. And with that, welcome to Coding Blocks. I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. And let's get into it. It's Crimatom! And I know we're like a month late getting back into another hey. episode. We can blame Outlaw for all that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> With it being Christmas time, JetBrains comes through in a big way. ReSharper 9. Yes. Yep. Not as cool as that uh, uh, Doomsday deal they had a couple of years ago with like 90% off everything. Oh, but God, that was so awesome. The Mayan was. calendar sale? Oh, yeah, man. It was like but 70% off. Yeah, I think, I, yeah, man. I wish they'd come back with something like that. You know their sales would go through the roof. Well, I guess depending on uh, what your needs are, though, they do have a new bundle called ReSharper Ultimate. So they've they repackaged or... I don't know how you want to say this. They've redone the way the SKUs were. So it used to be you would buy ReSharper for Visual Basic, ReSharper for C Sharp, and you'd buy those individually. Now, no, that's just ReSharper. And they have this ReSharper bundle now where I want to say it was basically for the price of two licenses. You're basically getting, I think, five or six. But, and this is why I say it depends on what your need is, because the other part of those products that you're getting were specific to C++. Mm. So... If you're not doing a lot of C++ development, mm, ReSharper Ultimate might not be for you. Yep. Yeah. I also notice they're slipping more and more JavaScript stuff in there, which I guess is a you know, sign oh, of the Oh, you're times. loving that these days, aren't you? No comment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <sighs> all right. So um, what else? Oh, uh, Progress Software just acquired Telerik, which I don't know what that means to the uh, software world, but I know there's a lot of users of Telerik tools, especially in the .NET community. So... Something to be aware of. You know, we we just got through December uh, through November. We were talking about all the gaming. It's game season. Yeah, Call of Duty. Oh, Anyone? Man. I've been playing the ever living oh, heck out awesome. of it. Yeah, that game is amazing. And you were dogging it before, like, oh, there's just gonna be new maps. That's all they are to do is well, change the maps. It is so awesome. No, this game is this game is off the chain. It's it's incredible. Oh, the boost pack is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I love just jumping around everywhere. And actually, I decided that I just wasn't going to get it because I got all the old ones I don't play. But then Patrick Dollar had to go and build a computer and take pictures of it. And then <laughs> I had to build a computer. And now I got to do something to try it out, right? But but you got to get a big video card. <laughs> yeah, my, mine's, mine's not horrible. But well, I don't think Call of Duty requires a big video card. No, but it, it doesn't on. matter if you need it or not. We're going there. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and speaking, somebody else also mentioned Shadows of Mordor being on the console, so I did get it on the PS4. It's amazing. Well, I was going to ask, while we were on Call of Duty, before we left that, though, did you finish the campaign? Anyone? I hadn't even started the campaign. No. I've not played a minute of the campaign. <laughs> Camp what? <laughs> All right. Dude, I accidentally Sometimes figured, the storylines are fun. I accidentally figured out how to thrust sideways. <laughs> I didn't even know you could do it. Okay. So, 
Um, no, I haven't played I'm, a second I'm off of the on campaign. my own over here. But no, Shadow of Mordor is absolutely killer. I mean, I know you play it on the PC, right, Joe? Yep. Yeah. Uh, I guess there's no point in asking you guys if you're an Atlas or a Sent- Sentinel. So, you know, never mind. I don't know. I don't even know what you're talking about. Oh, yeah, clearly. Wow. What is it? All right, Mr. Boost Sideways. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, okay, because I guess in the game it actually matters. <laughs> if you play. No, it matters. I guess the, the ending is either green or blue based on your decision, I guess. Is that the deal? <laughs> well, no, that'd be red or blue, and that'd be Halo. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. Master Chief Collection, come on. No, nice. I've definitely got some things that should be coming in the mail from Black Friday, so, hmm. so we'll see. All right. So, yeah, I guess the next thing, let's let's talk about, we've got, so it has been a month since we last did our podcast, and yeah, we've sorry. gotten a ton of reviews. So, this one was, was just awesome, so I've got to read this one. This was from Holy Moses. Intelligent plus in, useful. like, really, Moses? Like, like Moses came down and parted all the reviews <laughs> and laid this one down upon us? I think that's what happened, man. Um, so, intelligent intelligent plus useful times entertaining equals perfection, which humbling, but, um, I'm a beginner programmer and found this easier to understand and way better than my sleep inducing college programming class. It's also a nice break from the chaotic dumbed down Ebola pro sports Kardashian world. Keep up the good work. Dudes, you make fun learning. Uh, you make learning fun and free. Grade A plus. So, hey, dude, we really appreciate that. That one actually made me smile every time I've read it. I've I've laughed. Ebola so, and Kardashian in the same sentence. <laughs> uh, uh, although I'm huge into fantasy football, and it kind of hurt me that you bashed <laughs> on sports. So maybe it started out as there were 11 reviews, and he dropped one of the tablets. Right. There are. <laughs> I bring you these 10 reviews. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that one was awesome. Also, uh, Arnie Gudge, so he actually mentioned, or she, uh, to see a future episode on software testing and testing methodologies, and that's what we're doing this week, so this one's for you. Yep. Yeah, uh, testing. One, two, <laughs> testing. testing. <laughs> right. Yeah, very nice. And also, um, last episode we asked if anyone had any real-world example of the visitor pattern, uh, which we had begun to doubt, and we got two responses, Trent Apple and a, a comment on the website, law. Who both responded with the expression visitor, so we'll have a link to that in the show notes. I can't actually say this is for a fact an example of the visitor pattern because I still don't understand the visitor pattern. But according <laughs> to Google, this is a great example. So thank you very much. Yeah, and uh, you know, let's bring in something new here. Let's bring in the, the mail dot app. We, we we get some mail occasionally. You guys write into us, and uh, sometimes we're we're good about responding to it, and sometimes. We might be a little delayed in our response. Shadows of Mordor. Yeah, you know. So so we got this awesome one uh, from Ray. He writes in and says, Stumbled across your podcast recently, and as a longtime developer, found them to be one of the most useful around. You actually discuss real programming issues. Regarding your discussion on episode 17 of use what you know versus something to uh, try something new, and the cost of development platforms reminded me of his own situation. He primarily writes in Visual Studio and .NET, Visual... Uh, VB or C Sharp using MS SQL, and he wanted to write a simple data tracking application with very object-oriented storage requirements, but he hates mapping objects to relationships, so he wanted to try using an anti-SQL object-oriented database, and he found DB4O and says it was a simple, it was simple to integrate with Visual Studio. .NET examples got me up and running within an hour, and it was free. Unfortunately, it looks as if support has been discontinued, but it is still available. Uh, but it was a great experience and worth venturing outside his comfort zone. So, uh, you know, he, he talks about 
you know, maybe we should consider doing a podcast on, uh, you know, object language to database storage, uh, mismatch and, uh, you know, discuss specific ODBMs and, uh, that could be used for everyday applications. So thanks Ray for writing in and we'll put that in the bucket. Yeah, we, we've definitely got a long list of things to do, but that's one that I think probably all of us are somewhat interested in. So Yeah, I like Entity, but it's kind of a pain to set up with the code generation and everything. And I know there's a couple of... Um, yeah, it's a pain. If you're doing something little, something exploratory, then using a micro framework like Massive or like Pita Poco or something like that, it's so nice to just be say like, you know what, here's my class... Here's a result from a query, put them together. I'm sure it's using reflection in the background, but I don't care. I'm just having fun. You know, what the <laughs> problem is, is that exploratory stuff always ends up becoming like the legacy work. Right, yeah. You, sure. know, you end up just building upon that. You're like, you know what? I'll refactor that later. It, it, you know, it's small today. It'll be fine. Version right. 0. You know. 0.1 becomes 10.0. Well, I'm it, not on my it, couch. It, <laughs> it reminds me of a, a friend of mine's, uh, uh, you know, the, the little message he has on Twitter. And it's like, a, you know, it says something like, writing tomorrow's legacy code today right <laughs> uh, so so much of the stuff i write on my couch ends up never leaving the couch <laughs> so i'm not too worried about that all right so we also got another email uh and this came from lewis and he said hey guys love listening to your podcast could you add a list of your recommended tools i listen while biking and i remember the vague basics of some tools like the command line replacement but i can't remember the actual name searching for it is time consuming thanks so I know we've got a ton of them. I, I probably, I use con emulator, which might be what you're talking about. It's con emu. Um, I love that one. Oh, cause when he said command line replacement, I thought you were talking about like in some of the tips we've talked about, like deleting lines of text or replacing lines, blocks of text. Yeah. I, 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 I think he's, that. yeah, I think he's talking about actually command line replacement. No so. way guys. He's talking about biking tools. Like, <laughs> I've got this fantastic, I, I forget if it's park tools or alienware or whatever, but uh, it's this great little thing. <laughs> fits right into the bike seat and uh, never have a flat. But, but yeah, you guys want to just rattle off a list. I know we didn't prepare for this, but, um, I mean, well, I don't know that that's going to be helpful. No, it'll be a little bit, right? Because I mean, it'll all somewhat be in one place. Get bash. Get bash is good. Um, notepad, buddy. notepad plus plus. Just right. chocolate in from there, you get all the others. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there you go. But Notepad plus um, plus, Sublime Text. Well, Sublime versus Notepad plus plus. Hmm. Yeah, there, I, I don't feel like we can really list a bunch of tools because there's so many competing tools. Right. Yeah. But well, you're going to say WinDiff. I'm going to say Beyond Compare, and then Win Merge. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, you know, Sky Hensman's got a big list of tools that he likes, and he kind of does. Maybe we can do something like that on the site and just kind of have a running list of things that we. Yeah, so so we'll probably do that. We'll we'll put together a list of tools and uh, we'll we'll create a blog post and we'll mention it in the next podcast. Our our 2014 favorite tools. Yeah, Yeah. I like that. Yeah, there you go, man. You got you got your wish. All right, thanks. Thanks, Lewis. Now we got a blog (laughs) to write. (laughs) (laughs) I think Alan has a blog to write. (laughs) Oh God, here we go. He touched it last. Yeah. Also, we got a message from Marcus. This is our last one. So uh, he said he would love to hear a podcast on reactive extensions. And actually, this is something that we've talked about quite a lot and something we're very interested in. But I don't have a lot of experience with it, so I've been kind of hesitant to talk about it. But we do have a local resource here, uh, Jim Woolley, who I would love to to talk with more about it. Um, if we can bug him and come to the show on some, sometime, um, that would be cool. Yeah, I think we could do that. He, he sounds like he'd be willing to. Yeah, fingers crossed. Yep. <laughs> All right, so do we want to talk about some unit testing? Yeah, oh, please. This. I would love to. 
All right. Well, I know we, I know we're pretty excited to talk about this one because this was uh, near and dear to our hearts. Uh, I actually love talking about testing more than I love testing. <laughs> and I love testing more than I love coding. So <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. I'm a chatty Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start off a little bit. Um, yeah, go ahead, tick Kathy. So, uh, you know, we're talking about a little bit about unit tests, which is a specific kind of test. But really, before we kind of dive into that, I want to talk a little bit about just testing in general. And there's two kind of broad categories, which are really like, you know, testing that you do, like, as you're kind of working along in something like manual testing, like you refresh the page or you hit F5 and you run through the application and you see what worked in the debugger if you see what the output looked like. But there's also automated testing. So this is testing that can be run from, say, a command line or some sort of script or, or something that can be repeated without the involvement of a human. So uh, unit testing definitely falls into that second category. So it is repeatable. But there are lots of repeatable tests. So um, just kind of throwing it out there, there's security testing, there's performance testing, there's rushing testing, you know, meaning did I break something? There's UI testing. If you ever heard of something like Selenium, where it actually like oh, God, acts like it. a browser, yeah, it, it actually kind of mimics like you know the little mouse moving around, click, 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 submit. So, so I, when I'm thinking here, when I think testing, I'm I'm thinking more like test-driven development, regression testing, like you know the functional kind of testing. I and oh god, I hate Selenium. <laughs> right. Just, yeah. That that kind of like I'm not saying it's not important. It, it totally is, but. Well, that's one form of regression. That's one form of regression testing, right? Yep. So why but, but why do the, you say it's fragile though? But because so more often than not, like okay, so I, I stay away from it because I hate it. But the the testing that I have seen done on it, it's it's very tied to like okay, well, I need to look for specific classes or div IDs or you know, names of of the divs in order to find certain elements on the page. And it's like, Oh God, you better hope that nobody ever decides to change that because sometimes, you know, the, the guy writing that selenium test is not the guy who's maintaining that page. And when I see it, I'm like, Whoa, wow, that was a very dangerous, but you got lucky assumption you made there. Well, one, one of the problems I've seen and we don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole. Cause we're actually talking about unit tests today. But one of the issues that I've seen with that is, You'll see people say, okay, I know that it's the third table on the page. It's the fifth TD down from that. And when you do things like that, you're not testing in a way that, that makes sense. It's 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 almost like writing code to because Selenium is writing code to test your code, right? But when you would never write code that was that rigid or you would hope you wouldn't because then as soon as another use case comes along, it breaks. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, the, like any kind of – so I guess another reason why I hate – Okay, so so first off, let me if I wasn't clear already, I love unit testing, but when it comes to like selenium tests or test testing like that, those are follow more the record and replay type strategy of mm-hmm. of testing. Yep. And they're fragile. Yep. And I'd say they're fragile because they really touch a lot of things. Like think about all the re- things that can break a selenium test like a value in a lookup table could break. You change that column for or that, that row from active to um, new or something like that. It's going to break. If the HTML changes, it's going to break. If you lose internet connection during the test, it's going to break. If the business logic, you know, or if it's a legitimate bug or the list goes on and on and on. But see, here's why it's so important though, because like, and, and I don't think you said this one though, but one of the type of testing that 
really isn't under the realm of what I was really thinking we would talk about tonight, but was uh, load testing, performance testing, right? If you wanted to stress test your application, you need something like that that can do a full end-to-end. If you're really trying to see, hey, does my current architecture meet the needs of what I think, you know, the type of traffic I'm expecting to have, right? Yep. Then you need something like this, right? Like Visual Studio has a, has this capability, uh, uh, you know, in Visual Studio Ultimate, uh, where you can record and replay and create a web test, right? So you don't just have to use Selenium. That's not, there's plenty of other options out there for the, this type of testing. But yeah, I, I, I haven't seen any of them that I like that I'm a fan. One of. of the best I've seen, I think, is called Quick Test Pro or something like that. But it's a true testing suite. But it's literally like a macro recording, right? Like you go through, you click through, and you record what you do throughout the entire application, and you replay it. Now, if anything ever changes, like you said, a button on the page right. changes or it disappears or whatever. What about the workflow? Yeah. That, that's what I'm saying. Like record, record and replay unit, uh, any kind of testing that is based on record and replay is fragile by its it nature. Yep. So, so, you know, in the case of like a Selenium, if you decide to, hey, you know, uh, I want to test the checkout flow, but let's add in a new page. You, you got to redo it all. Yeah, you got to redo the whole the whole test. So I don't know, but it kind of maybe makes somebody sense, will right? speak in that's like you know an expert in uh, Selenium or you know web testing, um, you know platforms, and and they can write in and, and speak to their experience. But, but I to date haven't been a fan. But I will say, even though you're not a fan, it's still one of those necessary evils type things. Because, oh, it's definitely evil. Because the thing is, is let's say that you're working on bug fixes on other portions and you did not change the workflow. In theory. Your your testing should succeed now, and if it doesn't, well, then that means you probably put in a new regression. That, right, and that's that, why I conceded that it is needed. Yeah, yeah. But so in the other testing that we're you know the regular kind of testing that I'm thinking of uh, that we're going to be talking more about, like that kind of unit testing, I like more, and it, it just seems it, it doesn't seem to have the same fragile. Yeah. And I would also say that it goes for a a different type of problem. Like when I'm doing unit testing, I'm frequently working with some sort of runner and I'm running the test often, but I'm not doing that with Selenium. The tests take a long time to run. So it's not like you're going to make a little change and then run through all your Selenium tests again. Oh, well, we should just say that. It takes forever. But, but so, so you said that Selenium is slow, but really, and to be in complete fairness, if we talk about when we say that Selenium is slow, we're really just referring to that type of unit test, right? Right. Um, or, yeah, it's or not that Selenium. Kind of test. Nothing against yeah, Selenium. Yeah. But but really, if I could sum that up even better, though, what's slow are integration tests. Period. And you could write integration tests in uh, like in a test driven development kind of environment, right? If you needed to actually make connections to a database and you needed to do real types of you know, if you had dependencies on like real file systems or anything like that, anytime you do an integration test, I don't care what kind it is, you introduce latency into your test. Absolutely. And, and really, like uh, the first time anyone hears about unit testing or, or t- t- test-driven development or any of those buzzwords, the first thing they might do is sit down and write an integration test and think they're unit testing. And that's because that's kind of what comes to mind. That's what you think about when you hear the word testing. It's like you think about scripting out some sort of change that does something you know important in your system. Well, I feel like I kind of derailed this because we were going to start about talking about the types of testing, and I've already started talking about the things I hate. Uh, 
So, so actually, though, but I, I guess, think, you know, this is Festivus, you know, so Greg, Greg, get around the Festivus poll and let me tell you all the things that I hate. But I think this is a good opportunity, though, to actually define and nail down what what is the unit test exactly? Because we just talked about Selenium, which is like UI testing workflows and all that kind of stuff. And then you have your functional integration tests, which we just kind of said are involving your databases, your business logic, all that kind of stuff. So tell us, break it down. What exactly is a unit test? Okay, so so in my own words, if I were talking about the kind of unit testing that I like, let's say that you have a simple method that you pass in some variables, you expect a certain result. In my mind, when I when I talk about unit tests and when I talk about how I, I love unit tests, I'm talking about a unit test or a suite of test cases that will put take different inputs into that method and test for different outputs or uh, different scenarios like maybe if you expect exceptions to be thrown under certain scenarios things like that that or if you want to make sure that it can error handle correctly that's the type of test that i'm referring to when i say that i I love unit testing so what's your take on that yeah uh, basically the take i'm i'm taking is the one i stole from wikipedia which is basically um they give an intuitive definition here saying uh, that one can view a unit as a small testable part of an application. So when I think of a unit test, I think of it literally testing a line or a very small piece of functionality even within a method. So if you've got small methods, that can be at the method level. But it's it's usually something that's very kind of small, and you add these little very small things together, and it kind of paints the whole picture. So, so to give an example to uh, what I was saying, let, let's say that I had some method called add, and it takes in two integers and returns back an integer, right? A simple test method might be to pass in, uh, you know, two and three and test for the result of five coming back. Right. Um, that, that's the type of test that, that I'm talking about when I, when I talk about that, I love unit tests. Okay. So let's take this to another level. When you, when you talk about that, you expect an integer two and three to go in. What if somebody passes a null? Are you going to be testing for exceptions at that point? Right. So, so those are the other types of, those are the other use cases that I was referring to when I said that, you know, there might be a suite of tests that you have against that same method, right. That you're testing for like, okay, what happens if you pass in a string? What happens if you pass in, uh, you know, a null, does it, does it error handle it correctly? Or, you know, in the case of maybe you want to have an exception thrown under certain scenarios, did it throw the proper exception? Uh, yeah, things like that. And to be clear here, so what we're talking about, just so you know, we have one method here, add, right? And we're saying that you might have 10 unit tests that you write against it. Um, one that's actually passing in valid inputs, one that's passing in inputs that you may not expect, another one that's that's just maybe not even passing in the inputs, whatever. So um, you would write a unit test for, for this method five, six, seven different ways so that you can identify that it's working the way you expect it to work. Yeah, that that that's yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I like that. And so you are definitely testing a very small piece of the system. And I think a lot of people get frustrated when they try to do something like that because they don't think there's a lot of value. They can look at this small method add and say, obviously it works, and who cares? Let's move on. But see, the beauty of it though is that, like going back to your point of regression earlier, though, is that you test these small little pieces like that, and now it's almost like you have a contract that, hey, at this point in time. You know, at one point, this piece of code passed all of these scenarios. And if you've done anything to make any one of these scenarios fail, it's on you. You've changed, you've done something. 
Well, and you need to worry about it at that point, right? Because, because that means somewhere in your application, things are potentially going to go sideways, right? Because you've now changed the contract. It doesn't. It doesn't adhere to all of these scenarios that it used to. It used to adhere to, right? But I would say here's the argument: is uh, and this is not. It's a not a good <laughs> argument. Uh, but I would say that a, a lot of people would argue that um, why not just test the method that calls that ad or test at a higher level of abstraction and test like a workflow that ends up calling all these methods underneath, right? Aren't I testing all this stuff in a, a realistic way and the system's going to actually use it? And isn't that good enough? That's an interesting point to make about it. Um, yeah, but there's problems with like you're testing the happy path, right? You like you can't possibly check all those little things. Well, the, well what I was thinking is that you get too many dependencies. Well, yeah, and that's definitely a problem as well. And when you start talking about the dependencies, things start getting fragile and they also start getting slow. So if you're testing like a whole checkout workflow or something, yeah, you're probably looking at minutes to run through all of that. This might be why I don't like the testing platforms like the Seleniums of the world, where because there are too many dependencies in there where like I like to be able to test that, that, that endpoint, like in the ad method that we were talking about, you know, that seems like, you know, that, that's, that's a method that's not going to call another method. Right. So it, it makes it simple. Once you start getting into these other paths that you were describing where you have methods, calling methods, calling methods and classes, classes and classes, right. It gets deeper and it becomes the possibility for your test failing um, at a future date become higher but right? you know what though that's why you need a combination of the two you need the unit test you need the functional integration test and you need the selenium test right like i mean yep. well this, this is actually going to change that and say that's where you would use mock well i, I would say that you just described the testing pyramid hey <laughs> so there's this notion by this guy can't i didn't realize him. i was setting you up <laughs> michael uh, mike con we'll have a link to him in the show notes uh, who described this um testing pyramid which refers to um you know a triangle with GUI tests, your user interface tests being the very tip of that triangle, your acceptance or integration or functional tests being like the middle, and your unit tests making up the, the, by far the largest portion of these tests. And that's because they are very fine-grained. When something breaks, you know exactly what line it broke on, and they shouldn't break that often, and you get fast feedback cycles when you actually work on it. So it's really useful as a tool for your development. And that's the way that I think of testing is it's really a tool to help me code, not so much prevent bugs, which is weird because when you think of testing, that's what you think about, right? Yeah, I mean, to, to add on to your comment, though, it kind of is a great segue into like a test-driven development type of pattern, but I, for the life of me, can't do it. Yeah, uh, and there's like, been a lot of debate about I, it. I read the books on it, and I, I'm in awe of the people who do it where they write their test first, but honestly, there's more often than not, I don't even know what my class is going to look like yet. I don't even know what it's going to be named. Right. I don't right. even know what the methods are going to be named. Like, and now I got to write the test. And so I know that the approach is, you know, you write the test, you write some code, you refactor, rinse and repeat, right? Refactor, refactor, refactor. But since I don't even yet know what my class is going to be named, what methods are going to be named, like things like that, sometimes, I would be doing a lot of refactoring and I'm very particular about um, my, the structure of my unit tests, um, which I was really planning on getting into this later, but the, the structure of my unit tests matching the actual tests that I'm, uh, you know, the methods that I, that are under test. So I would end up 
going nuts having to refactor that all the time. Yeah, and that's kind of funny about unit unit testing and testing in general. Is like if you're talking about a, a brownfield app, most of the time it's impossible to test it because there's so many dependencies. You really can't cut stuff out easily. But then at the same time, it's really hard to unit test a greenfield project because you don't really know what you're doing and you're you know frequently deleting whole classes and changing things around dramatically. So you end up wasting a lot of time. That's why I, I would love to get better at TDD, but it really it you gotta change your mindset completely. And you also have to plan a lot more up front if you don't want to spend a lot of time refactoring, redoing, refactoring, redoing, which is which is hard, especially if you're working on a personal project, right? Like you don't really want to sink that much time into it. You want to sit down and do something and get where you're going. And I, I don't know. That's that's one of the things with a, with test-driven development that I've found difficult is unless you have a well-laid-out plan, it's hard to go down that path. Yep, absolutely. Especially if it's a personal project and you don't even know if you're going to be working on this tomorrow, if you're going to give up, you know, if you're just trying to get something working, then, you know, it's hard to test. But I do think that if you write a lot of tests, whether it's brown or green, or you just kind of force yourself to do it, then after a while, your code starts reflecting that style. And so you end up doing things like, you know, keeping dependencies out and stuff kind of naturally. And uh, although it's definitely easy to slip stuff in there and not realize until you actually try to test it, you know, it keeps you honest. Uh, It can be a, a good practice. Well, that is the beauty of of test driven development, though, is that it it does force you into this path where you know, it it tries to keep you more honest, which is a good thing, right? Because I, I've definitely found myself in situations where, like, after the fact, I go to test something, and I'm like, oh crap, I made a dependency in there that I didn't mean to make. Yep. So. Yeah. And you'll see people talk about it being a design tool. And so it, it's weird with the name testing. It's it's kind of a misnomer, but um, at least, you know, that's my opinion on it. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so why? why? Why test? Well, I would say that, you know, the obvious answer is, you know, that kind of springs to mind is fewer errors. But uh, actually, I don't have a link to this. I need to find one. But in the book Code Complete, which is, you know, um, I don't know, written in the 80s and it's been updated, but it's still an awesome, fantastic book. But they actually did a, a lot of studies on different kind of testing methodologies and, um, you know, basically comparing them, you know, like how does code review do against automated testing versus, you know, um, like static analysis. And they did find that unit testing was not near the top. You know, I think it found like 30% of errors and code review did much better. But when you combine these multiple tactics together, that's when you got by far the best results. And so it does, you know reduce bugs but not as much as you might think now, the good news there is that i would say that you probably find bugs sooner and i don't know if there's been any studies to determine that or not but it's nice to know like if someone makes a line of code change and runs the tests or else maybe some sort of build server runs the test if they check in uh, then hopefully they're going to find that error the second it happens and not three months later after you've got a bunch of data to fix. Well, well before you go on to the next portion of this, I think that's one of the things that you guys were talking about just a minute ago with it forces you to be consistent in the way that you code and also the way you think about things because in a lot of cases you'll see people write code and it won't check for nulls or it won't check for things. When you start writing unit tests, you have to think about these things because you're going to be thinking about, all right, what happens when I give it this input? What happens if I give it a null input? Does it send me back a null output, whatever? And so when you start thinking about that, you kind of get in the mindset of you have this set of things that you're, that you're going to be trying. And so it kind of, it, it almost forces you to be more complete in just your, your approach to writing code at that point. So, you know, yeah, absolutely. 
I've also seen a remark that um, sometimes people say that tests are the documentation. I've never gotten this one. I've never gone to the test to be like, how should this work? And, and well, I feel like that's the case maybe with integration tests, but unit tests. Well, this is where I'm going to say, like, uh, you know, to your comment a moment ago, though, about the uh, about catching the errors and everything, is that <clears throat> yeah, it, it can catch errors sooner in like your your low level API calls, like the add method that I mentioned, right? But that doesn't mean that you can't use that method wrong, right? So so maybe in your UI, you know, you could still have a a bug in your UI where you're, uh, you know, you called add when you should have called a multiply method. Right. Right. But the add method is still working. So yeah, it, it's not going to catch your usage of that method wrong. Right. But uh, that, that's where, you know, other platforms might come in, play better. Yep. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Um, also, you know, we kind of mentioned it, it promotes loose coupling, you know, good design. And uh, we kind of mentioned, you know, catching bugs automatically, so like automatic regression catching, which is really nice. But really, the three biggies that I, I think are really important is, uh, as we mentioned, it promotes. Huh, I just mentioned this well-crafted code. Uh, also, my favorite, a shorter feedback loop. If you've ever done something where you had to just add some little line of code, but then you have to spin up the application, kind of click three ways, set up your data, you know, this way and that way in order just to see if something, you know, stupid worked, like changing a plus to a minus, then you can do that in a little test, you know, be reasonably certain that it's going to work like you think it's going to work, and then go, you know, verify it when you need to. So it's a, a way but of kind of working. More importantly than that, though, you can run it through a multitude of scenarios much faster in your unit test than you could by spinning up the application as you described, right? And yep. clicking through the UI 20 different ways. Yeah, yeah. Wh whatever, whatever that interface might be. Yep. So if you got some little code that kind of like converts a hash map to an array or something like that, something kind of trivial, you wouldn't really think about it. But now I don't have to go click the application to do it. I can see that my conversion is happening like and, I expected. And this might be the whole reason why I like the you know, the API type unit testing versus the Selenium is just because uh, it it is easier and faster to see it, uh, you know, w without having the 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 dependencies in there. But yep. your dislike of that though, it, it, it makes sense, but it's still necessary. Like it's, it's testing something totally different, right? It like is, you're, it is. you're testing what, what the like... end user is going to see as opposed to what you as the developer expect to happen. Right. And that's really I, I the big the way, difference. The place where I see these happening though, the, these happen. Okay. So, so this is kind of in line with Joe's comment about shorter feedback loop because the place that the unit test is ran should be at the developer's workstation, yes. right? Whereas I would imagine that like uh, load testing, performance testing, you know, those are handled out closer to the edge, right? That that's, that's happening as part of, you know, uh, you know, before you deploy it, you know, something like that. A Selenium might be before that, before you like send it off for user testing, you know, you, you run it through some automated tests just to catch some of the, the quick ones. So, you know, th there's different testing um, layers types that yeah. are happening at different stages of the development cycle. Yep. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, and if you think of, like the opposite of a of short feedback loop, like a long feedback loop, like if you're working for a you know a cash register company, something, and uh, or you know an ATM machine, you need to make sure that if they type in five digits that it displays an error message, then you shouldn't have to make the code change, upload the code to the ATM, go over to the ATM, try five digits to see if it worked, and it doesn't, you go back. Especially when something's you know multiple steps in, like that's a long time just to test this little change. So if you can kind of make this little change see that's working, kind of move on to something else that's somewhat related, 
and then go kind of verify it in the user interface later on, then you've saved a lot of time. I know I don't want to use your ATM. <laughs> well, it kind of depends on which error direction yeah. it went in. And I've been really surprised to see, um, maybe not surprised, but I know there's been a, a big rise in, in unit testing in JavaScript lately with um, like tools like Jasmine. And I know for me, uh, when I used to write a lot of JavaScript, um, I would do stuff like, yeah, no comment. Uh, <laughs> so you would do something like, you know, write a line you're not sure if it's going to work. So you write an alert or a console or, you know, write the debugger statement and you see it and you're like, okay, that's not what I, what I thought. Let me go back, repeat. Click, 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 click. All right. I thought so the now alert the next was alert. for uh, testing JavaScript. <laughs> that's right. It's definitely, <laughs> that's yeah. not how unit testing is done in JavaScript. <laughs> And so, that's never been left in production code <laughs> anywhere. Oh, man. <laughs> you should leave your console open just to see the stuff that's in there. But, yeah, the the uh, the JavaScript testing frameworks have definitely grown in popularity over the past year or two. Like, yep. <laughs> and uh, I got two quotes here from uh, David Starr, and these are from the Pluralsight video, which we'll have a link to. Um, and one of the quotes is that writing tests first means writing testable code, and uh, the other is that writing testable code happens to result in well-designed code. So those things we just talked about, but just, you know, before we moved on, I wanted to mention, like, what, what do we mean by well-designed code? You know, because, I mean, it all works, right? Isn't the real value in just getting the right answer? But um, I think what, what he would say here is to say that well-designed code means that your code is easy to read, not necessarily easiest, right, because we've got interfaces. Uh, we've got code that's easy to maintain and Wait, easy to change. because it's solid? Because it's solid, because of cutting those dependencies out, you're going you're gonna to end up doing some interfacing. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, let's let's take a moment to uh, to to make a shout out here. So we got some love on iTunes here. Amy Meyer uh, wrote in and she says, a "Great podcast to improve your coding. Focused to the point. Real developers talking about real issues and decisions we all make. I mean, decisions or mistakes. <laughs> maybe a little both. I think but... maybe she was giving us some credit." <laughs> But I guess my know. mistakes are decisions, right? Yeah, so. It can be. <laughs> Super set. <laughs> uh, we also got one on Stitcher, which uh, that one's usually a little bit quieter, but from Adam UK, awesome podcast for devs. I think regardless of your experience, you're going to learn something new from these guys. Where do you so, think he's from? Uh, don't No idea. Uh, Adam Uck. Not sure. Yeah, it's a weird name. <laughs> but um, as always, guys, we really do appreciate the feedback. And if you are enjoying the podcast, you're learning anything, please do. Take the time to go to iTunes, Stitcher, and come up to our site and leave us a comment or something. Um, we really do appreciate it. So, and not only that, like like Alan said, if you are enjoying it, you know, do us the favor and tell two friends that uh, you know about the show and and get them hooked on it as well. And if you don't enjoy the show, tell three friends. <laughs> <laughs> or three people that you don't like yeah. get them hooked on it yeah, absolutely yeah, we appreciate it yeah. <laughs> all right so uh so how do you test yeah that's one thing I, you know there's a plenty of tutorials so you can definitely you know go google it and see you know that's how we're not going to read code over the over the air to you but um did want to mention you know what it really means to actually write a test and for the most part at least for me it means starting up a new assembly that just contains tests i don't want to mix my test code in with my you know normal stuff and uh, you don't want to mix your chocolate with your peanut butter. Uh, that's right. Not in this case. Uh, you know, I don't want to be deploying any sort of test code that could accidentally get run or do something weird in production. Um, so definitely like to keep that separated. And then you use some sort of test runner. And um, MS Test comes bundled with um, certain visual versions of Visual Studio. Yeah. I'm not sure. I think it's a pro, right? Well, they did just come out with the new um, community uh, community version though, and I believe that one includes 
MS test, doesn't it? Oh, nice. I don't yeah, know. I might be wrong on that. Yeah, and um, also another popular one in .NET is NUnit. And what's nice about those is they both have standalone runners, so you can run them from command line. NUnit actually has like a, a UI you can run, which is nice. And, and, and no, NUnit is really popular. That. I used to use it. I like it. Yeah, it's but a bright back, green. Though. Maybe it's when it first green. came out, you used it. I mean, yeah. So, so did well, now I, I got resharper. Now, who well, bothers? I mean, I know we're talking about these things, but for those who don't use them, I mean, what what, what are they looking to expect from this, right? Like, oh, sure. And, and yeah. Test Runner basically loads up some sort of config file, or else it like scours your assembly and figures out what you know what public tests to run, and it goes through, it iterates through, and runs each test and tells you which one fails. Well, more more often than not. Uh, Depending on the test runner, they'll have different uh, decoration. It's looking for methods and classes decorated with different attributes. Um, yeah. So I say this is like I tag it as a test class or a test method. Yeah, and if everything succeeds, then you'll basically get a bunch of greens, right? If if something fails in there, it'll stop and let you know. Or in some of them, it stops, and others it'll continue running, but it'll point out which one of those unit tests failed. Yep. Well, yeah, I mean, it shouldn't stop running the test just because one of them failed. But what I really wanted to point out here, though, because in there, there were some other ones, other, uh, you know, like XUnit and MSpec that, you know, maybe you need to use for your specific. Definitely NUnit is among the top. And MS Test is definitely uh, uh, up there because it's bundled in, you know, more often than not, you, you're going to be using a version of Visual Studio that has it built into it. But uh, we should point out that NUnit is, of course, a variation of JUnit, uh, which was the Java version. And there's some slight differences between the two. Uh, I mean, they, you know, NUnit definitely started from the off of the shoulders of JUnit, but they definitely uh, ended up taking different paths. So there are some subtle differences between them as they've both matured. But what I really wanted to mention with this part, though, was that don't use MS test. <laughs> yeah, because because there's a lot of there's a lot of things that you would want to do that you might want to do that in the beginning of your unit testing um, career, you might find that you know you, you you don't even think about. You're like, well, I don't. That's not a big deal. I don't care. And so you just use MS test. But eventually, you'll you'll kind of grow up into that career, and there'll be certain things that. MS test will just fall completely short on. And like the, the biggest one that comes to mind for me that I often want to do that I can't do easily or well with MS test is parameterized test. Absolutely. You know, and by that, what I mean is like, let's picture you had that add method, right? And let's say that I have <clears throat> another class and another assembly, as Joe mentioned, and in that assembly and, and in that class, there's a method to test that add method. And, you know, maybe I want to test, have one version of it to test uh, two and three, and another version that'll test three and four, another version that'll test four and five. Well, it'd be nice if I could only have one test and then just pass in those values as parameters to that test and then just test each one of those to see that they return back the expected result, right? Now, in that very contrived example, that might not seem of value, but you'll see that there might be tests in the future where, let's say you want to do uh, address validation comes to mind, right? Any kind of string manipulation where you, know, you might want to just pass in different variations of a string and 
check to see like, hey, did my regular expression still match under this scenario? What about under this scenario? What about if I'm looking for a P.O. box in this format, a P.O. box in that format? What about, you know, so that's where parameterized tests are awesome. Yeah, yep. because if you come up with a new variation on that in the future, you can just add another it, it, and, and all it is, is, is it's, you, you have the one method, okay? So you're staying very dry, but you have uh, multiple attributes on top of that method, each with the different parameters, right? And, and uh, there might be some subtle differences between like an in unit versus a J unit, but yeah, parameterized tests all the way. In MS test, you, there's no good way to do it. Yeah, there's something with an XML file, but no one does that. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, I mean, I've seen I've seen some other complete hacks out there where they're like creating data tables on the fly and passing in the values that way, and then passing the data table Ugh. off to the method, and then yeah, gross. Well, that's just fragile too. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I don't want to be spending my whole time messing around with that. I just want to get to it. Well, right. yeah, I mean, as far as your comment about fragile, though, you can eat just as easily write bad unit test code as you can regular code. So Absolutely. you do have to be careful about the way you structure some of this. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that comes to mind is, and we talked about this, is you could, if you have a 100 different things that are testing various a class, per se, and you were newing up that class in every one of your 100 test methods, that that's not a dry approach. And now if that class changes, the implementation of that class changes, and you can no longer instantiate it the way that it was being done 100 times before, you now have to go touch every one of those test methods to update how it in instantiates that class. Oh, you mean like if you change the constructor or something? Yes, yes. So, Object initialize. So one of the... <laughs> yeah, constructors ban, that's not very dry. Man, who does that anymore? Getting away from that. So what you should do is it's very easy for people writing unit tests to just kind of almost copy and paste their code into a new unit test. And that's a bad idea too because then you are doing bad practices. Keep it dry. If you're going to be newing up a class somewhere, put that in its own its own call somewhere, and then that way if that ever changes, you only have to change it in one place. So so even your unit tests need to be coded well because it can come back to bite you in the butt later if you don't think about these things up front. Well, I, I will mention, though, we said before when we were talking about the seleniums of the world, uh, and we categorized those as the simple... Um, record and replay type uh, test scenarios. There are other, or you know, there are older frameworks that did similar things at the API levels that you know really kind of fallen out of usage, out of favor um, nowadays. But the the pattern of testing that has become more widely acceptable would be the, the AAA format, the arrange, the act the assert um, pattern for your test. So in, in your, when you're constructing your test, you have one portion of it where you arrange variables to match whatever scenario you're testing. You have an act portion of the method that is going to actually test the method. It's actually going to call the method under test, right? And then there's the assert portion that will that'll be last and that's going to uh, check to you know whatever the return value was for example um or if you're checking to see if a certain method got called um whatever whatever it is that you're trying to test for that assert is going to happen last and the best practice would be 
that you should only have the one assert method, uh, or the one assertion in your in your unit test. Yeah, I feel like if you're if you're having a problem following this pattern of the AAA, <laughs> then maybe you're doing something a little fishy there. And, and it's a good pattern for different reasons. Like you don't want to have more than one assert because if one of them breaks, you don't know about the rest of them. You know, it's not as informative, and it kind of hides stuff from you. All right. So, uh, oh, uh, one other thing. Since we're already talking about things to watch out for, I, I got a dog on it. I'm sorry. Singletons. A lot of times. Oh my god. There's one in the application. They oh, uh, they often. You doing it? Why would you do this to me, Joe? <laughs> I'm sorry. We were friends. I didn't do it. The singletons oh, often they I hide dependencies. So you know, you might have a singleton class that does stuff like interact with session or the database or the file system like a logging application or all the different examples we gave of reasons to use singletons are all really bad for unit testing. Now, hold if you on. Have... Before you go dogging my boy singleton now, is this is this because the singleton itself is a bad pattern or because the specific implementation maybe should have used some dependency injection maybe? D- dependency injecting a singleton? It, well, like whatever the dependencies <laughs> that you're talking about, the, that the singleton has, right? Right. Well, so yeah, the, we talked a little bit about singletons and how you kind of instantiate them. And if you're kind of you know passing those in, like I, I think actually the definition of a singleton might be that it creates itself, right? Yeah, it does. But but what I'm saying though is like you're talking about that the that the singleton itself has like a dependency on I don't know like a database or uh, maybe the file system. And what I'm saying is, if that if that singleton has a dependency on something else, right? What if you were using like a dependency injection to solve that? Then is it still the fault of the singleton pattern in regards to testability? <laughs> right, right. So before you could dog it on my boy yeah, now, it's true. So singletons, I, I will say, singletons I got your back, singleton often high dependencies, but that's not a requirement of the singleton. It's just how everyone uses them. <laughs> Yeah, it so, is often used bad, I, I will admit. <laughs> yeah. So if you see a singleton in code, you're probably going to have a testing uh, tough spot. In fairness, that's not bad use. It's just not loose coupling of it, right? Like, yeah. I mean, it, it's... Well, this often goes back to, like, like when we were talking about the creational patterns. Um, shoot, what episode was that? I Who forget. knows? Um, but, uh, you know, and we talked about the singleton and the... You know, that, that particular pattern, there's at least a dozen different ways to construct a singleton. Yeah. Right. And, and my favorite particular one of them had to do with, uh, where you have a, um, like if we're talking strictly in C sharp, where you would have like an instance property, right. And whenever you call that property, if it's, if that value is null, you know, based off of some, um, member backing data, then it can instantiate a new version of itself and then that's what it would return back for you to use but you you allow it to be um reset so if you wanted to be able to um maybe maybe you want to have a specific method to do the resetting or maybe you want to be able to just pass in like a null value to it or you know whatever whatever your you know preference might be the point is like you know one of the singleton patterns was like static constructor hate that version of the singleton implementation, because in the, in the examples that you mentioned, where if you do have a dependency on something like uh, a, a database. database or a file system, whatever that might be, if that static constructor um, based singleton fails, then it will never reinstantiate it and you can never do anything about it. So at least in that, the, the instance property version that I mentioned in your 
testing scenario, you at least have the ability to uh, reset that value back to null. So at the at the arranged portion of your test case, you know you could you could say singleton dot instance equals null, and that way you're guaranteed that the next time when you call that, it's going to be a fresh version of it. So it it'll um, re reset itself for your test, which is you know something we didn't really discuss, but you know the each version of your each one of your tests you, needs to be a fresh state. Right, and that's a really good point. And so we've got a little section here we called um, "How do I know if I'm doing it right?" And actually, one of the when items, it hurts, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's exactly right. Uh, but one of the uh, items on there that I'm adding right now uh, is basically, "Can your items run out of order?" And then that's really important. I don't think I've ever seen a test runner that lets you order your tests specifically. Oh, that's actually a pretty big one though, too, because th when you write your unit test, there is no guarantee depending on on what tests uh, are going to run in what order. And depending on the test runner, I've actually seen, you will see different results. You'll see different tests get called. I think they do on purpose. In different order. Yep. Well, I'm pretty sure like, um, I, th I don't, oh God, I don't remember now. One of them, um, is specifically if you were to run MS test versus in unit, one of them actually I've noticed, and maybe this was just my luck, but I happen to notice that it was running all the tests bottom up. Hmm. And it's I like whatever seen... the class was, it was running the test bottom up. Hmm. I feel like that's a feature that, that they do that to kind of keep you honest. You know, it makes sense that you don't want to rely on some sort of state because we're supposed to be cutting out our dependencies here and testing our actual code lines. So we shouldn't be relying on some sort of shared state between these methods. So I think it makes sense to run these tests out of order just to make sure that calling method A before B doesn't do anything in the stateless test. Yeah, and if you actually have a test that depends on the outcome of another test, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. And you're you're writing integration tests. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. That's an integration test at that yep. point. So Well, I don't even know if you could call it that because then if I switch the test runner, it's gonna fail. No, but but mm -hmm. what you said is if you're writing them that depend on the outcome the outcome. But I said of if you're writing else. a test that depends on the outcome of another test. Right. That's that's oh okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. I'm with you. Right. And it's also really bad too, because if you think like say I have test one that moves the file, test two deletes the file from its new location. What happens if test two fails? And then I've got this file sitting there and it's gonna mess up future runs of the test and mm -hmm. you know, it's just getting my system into a bad state. Yep. Yep. Uh, also, another reason or another way to tell if you're doing it right is um, whether you could run your tests on your build server if, if you have one. And what that kind of tells you is that uh, the build server usually doesn't have access to things like uh, the production servers or, or you know production database, at least hopefully not. Um, things like session, um, IES, stuff like that. It's just a dumb build server. So if you can run your tests on your build server, then you're probably doing okay. So well, let's back up for a moment here. Because uh, we kind of skipped ahead, but let's say like, w why should we test first? Why should you test first? Yeah, I don't know if I agree that you should. It kinda, no, kind of depends. So there's there's a big argument right now, kind of going on between uh, like Martin Fowler and um the DHH uh, Ruby guy. We can find a link to, uh, and they're kind of talking about the value of TDD. They're not talking about the the value of testing, and they're not arguing that. Both of them kind of agree on that, but they are talking about the value of writing the test first. And the problem is, as we kind of mentioned, you know, brownfield code, existing legacy code bases, it's really hard to abstract stuff out. And when you're doing greenfield stuff, a lot of times you're focusing on the, the you know, the, the UI and kind of just seeing and prototyping and seeing if something's going to work. So it can be difficult to test first. And so, you know, the kind of the idea, I think that DHH is kind of proposing, I'm surely getting this all wrong, but what I'd like to think that he's going after is that 
you don't have to write your tests first as long as you're writing testable code. And TDD is a tool for writing testable code, but it's not the only way. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there's this whole notion of, they call it red-green refactor, where you basically, you write the failing test first, and you basically write the, the code with no, the test code with no code to test, make sure it fails, and you make sure it passes by doing green, and then you kind of do, and you sort of a little cleanup and make sure that it's still green, and you just iterate on that, but... It's uh, slow. It's very slow. I will say the closest I've been able to personally get into like TDD, which isn't, I don't think, according to everything I've ever read about it, it would be considered true TDD, is if I'm already pretty far along in my uh, class, uh, or classes, I should say, whatever that namespace is that I might be working in, and, and I already have a, pretty much established the pattern of where, where it's going to end up, then I can start writing tests that, uh, you know, I know I'm going to want this test and I know I'm going to want that test and, uh, I can go ahead and have them fail. But where I say like, I, I'm still fall short on, on the true TDD is like often I'll know that, uh, I want to test something, but I'll go ahead. I, I won't know exactly how the, the innards of that test are going to look. So I'll just write an assert fail yeah, or, uh, assert is true false. Yeah, I don't like you that know, type type of method. Um, well, but but I know you say you don't You're like that. You're stubbing it out, basically. Yeah, exactly. I'm stubbing out the test, and and I I don't commit it like that. But I go ahead and and write that structure that way. I know like, hey, at some point I want to write a test, uh, or I want to come back and finish this test to to pass this. But it's not true TDD. Uh, I still can't get into that yeah it's gross as much as i try and want to a lot another big problem i have with td and you'll see this a lot is a lot of times you'll say write the minimum amount of code to make the test pass and what that means is like if you're testing you know you've got a length function you want to return the value one if there's only one item in the list and that very first test you write you call it um you know has one and then you go you know make it fail then you go over to your code you return the value one because you're literally writing the least amount of code to make the test pass, not correctness. And you come back to your test, does it equal one? Yes, it does. And you add your second test, and that's when you go and end up kind of fixing your first case. Uh, but that just seems really gross and backwards to me, and I, I just haven't been able to swallow that. Yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of curious to see, like, where is this going to end up in the long run? Like, like, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now, are we going to so like, is TDD going to be the winner, or are we going to come back on it and be like, mm, you know what, no. Nah. That so maybe some other pattern will fall will will, will become the uh, the main one. Who knows? Honestly, I think it probably boils down to the type of application, right? Like if it's something that is critically financial or transactionally related, yeah, sure. Then maybe you do something like TDD because it makes a lot of sense, right? It might be slower, but your whole goal is to make sure it's perfect, right? So I, I would almost think that it might it might differ across industry or across application type, mm-hmm. uh, so and even work type. Like yeah. if you're trying to fix a bug, like you know, you can't add a negative quantity to a cart. It makes sense. That you could, you know, and the bug exists. You could you could write a test that's you know adds the the cart the item to the cart and doesn't work. Yes, and I go fix it and then fix the test. Right. So so, so what happens if you uh you you write that that code the least amount of code to solve that test or pass that test, as you said. And so in your example, you were testing for one. You write a method that just hard codes to return back one. 
Then you go to lunch and you forget. And then you forget. You yeah. Forget <laughs> and that, I think that's what his point was. Yeah. And, and the code coverage this. shows 100% because every yeah. line is tested. Like, it, that, that's like the Sopranos of code. Forget about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm good. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so how do you test, how do you TDD Brownfield stuff then? Existing code. Yeah, well, you can't. You don't. Yeah. It, it's already written. The code's already written. It's brown. Yeah. So from, it's basically from then on, it's kind of the Boy Scout rule. You basically just try to make things a little bit better. And uh, any sort of new code you write, you try to do it in a dependency-less style. You know, keep it solid, and then it's testable. But, I mean, almost going back to your point, you almost can TDD portions of your code at a time. Only so, if you're, like, introducing new features. Exactly. So yeah. Brownfield, you Brownfield doesn't mean that you're not ever enhancing it or anything right it just means that it's an existing code base so to your point a minute ago hey if there's one portion that you really strongly feel that needs to be driven by a certain set of rules then maybe you do that portion that way so i don't know just an interesting thought on that yeah all right oh and so here was something interesting i found on stack overflow and this uh we'll leave a link in the show notes but there was this thing that this guy wrote and I, I don't remember who it was, but he had this, these two notions and I'm sure they weren't his, but equivalence partitioning and boundary value analysis. These were two different approaches to unit testing that I thought were pretty interesting. So really what it boils down to is instead of trying to test for every single input and output that, that exists. So equivalence partitioning is you break your inputs into groups. So let's say that, um, I don't know, maybe you have negative numbers, zeros, and positive numbers. That's your groups. And then given those, you have an output expectation based off those inputs. So that logically groups your inputs and your expected outputs. And that's why they call it like this equivalence partitioning because they all should, given the input, give you an equivalent type output. Clearly this guy uses NUnit. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to, to me, they're, they're kind of like the kind of dumb it down so I can understand it. It's, it's basically a way of dividing your data set into these kind of regions that you think makes sense. So, you know, you like, if you've got something that makes change for a dollar, you know, you could test every single combination of the coins and, uh, it's going to be miserable or you can do write a couple of tests. You basically subdivide your, your data and say, um, you know, big amounts, small amounts, negative amounts, something like that. You know, that's probably a bad example, but you know, it's just the idea of kind of taking up the full range of, uh, expected income, uh, inputs and kind of dividing it so that you're testing a representative from each group. Well, my thinking about this wrong. Cause when I made my joke, I was, I was thinking of parameterized tests. Well, I would, I would do parameters with it, you know, so I would do like those kind of tests for negative, tests yeah. for positive, tests for big, tests for small, whatever. You're just talking about having the parameters grouped together. Yes. Yeah. And then the, the boundary value analysis was actually taking that equivalence partitioning, which we just talked about like one step further and saying, Hey, all these edge cases themselves also need their own tests. So if I, I, I mean, I can't come up with a great example off the top of my head, but let's say that, you know, you were taking in us dollars, but then somebody passed in pesos, right? You might have a, a pesos type test. So it, it's basically expanding upon the grouping and saying, Hey, these outliers, the ones that you expect these edge cases that may occur, you might want to have unit tests for those individually. So that was a pretty interesting take. Yep. So, so let's talk about why testing sucks. Yeah. It really does. If we uh, haven't convinced you already. Yeah. <laughs> well, first off, it's trying to tell me I didn't do it right the first time. Right. Which we all know is wrong. I did it right. And I'm not wrong. 
there's a reason why, like, you know, seven-eighths of the places you've probably worked in your life haven't had zero tests. It's because it's hard, and it requires a lot of refactoring, and a lot of times management doesn't see the value. Uh, so it can be a hard sell, and you're going to run into people who say, I don't have time to test because I need to get this done. And the easiest way is just grab the value out of session, and I'm done, and I'm, you know, at lunch. So yeah, it's I kind of a hard sell when you're like, okay, so it's going to take me, uh, you know, sixty percent of my day to write the unit test, and then the rest would just be to actually write the code. Right. Yeah, like, we need to spend well, the next six the months refactoring before we can even start testing, and then I swear it's going to make us faster. Yeah, good luck getting that one past the bosses. I mean, the thing is, though, it really does reduce technical debt, though. And that's one well, thing that none of us will argue here, but it is a really hard sell when you're like, yeah, seriously, it's going to take me half my day to do this as well, opposed to just getting the functionality out there. So I'll agree with you on the technical debt, but but you brought up the uh, – um, oh, gosh. How'd you word it a moment ago? Where where um, the, the, the stats of, of – uh, how much faster it's going to be or, or quicker. Um, there's actually been some tests, some, some uh, test. studies. Yeah, <laughs> Interestingly enough. <laughs> Different kind of test. <laughs> so there's actually been some studies that where they've, they've actually taken the time to say like, okay, you know, group a will write code and they won't write the unit tests. Uh, and then group B will write the unit tests and like, which one actually performs uh, faster. And, and, up front, yeah, that uh, you know the group B that was writing the tests, especially if they were following TDD, they might have been behind up front while they were just structuring tests and everything and getting a, a flow down together. And group A, who was just writing code, looked like they were rocking you know right along and, and going to proceed faster. But then once the second group got their tests structured, then they started to progress much faster and which with a much higher confidence and and. I know we were going to talk about the uh, this and the resources we like, but uh, actually some of these tests, these studies I'm referring to, there's actually a reference to it in uh, The Art of Unit Testing. Uh, in that book, it references some of that. And it makes sense because the people that just started hitting the ground running coding, they probably started producing sp spaghetti code and that kind of stuff, which is much harder to do if you're actually writing unit tests against your methods. So. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, their their code with all their dependencies works fine for right now, and then three weeks later, they end up finding that their 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 problems that they're trying to solve then become more difficult because of dependencies that they mistakenly baked in without realizing it. But now they're in a situation where it's like, well, I can't easily undo that, so I'm gonna have to live with that. And now I got to bake in all these other, and yep. I got to jump through all these other hoops to try to get around that, and it becomes a nightmare. Yep. Yep. So, so absolutely another reason why it sucks. Oh, explosion. So the thing with te writing testable code is that you're writing these small units that kind of compose together and it's all very solid. And just like the solid principles and we talked about quite a bit, it leads to a class slash interface slash method explosion. You're definitely going to end up with a lot more classes with a lot smaller methods. And that can be a really good thing for composability and good architecture, but it can be a real pain for someone who's not familiar with code or is familiar with the old version of the code that used to have one file with seven methods and is now looking at, uh, you know, seven files and three interfaces. Seven files? Wouldn't that be like <laughs> 14? Right. <laughs> oh, Depends and, on how uh, solid it is. 43 methods. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but uh, especially um, it, it could just be a pain. And a lot of times people kind of struggle also with um, public versus like internal or private methods and what to test and whatnot. And, um, so it can be a big deal. Cool. Yep. And along that line, there are the dependencies. So, uh, 
Yeah, that's really the, the roughest spot is you've got to cut that stuff out there. If you've got tests that rely on you find the dependencies or so request, quick. Especially, and even in the .NET framework, you know, like the HTTP request, you know, there's no interface for that. There's no way to graft on an interface to existing code. You know, we talked about that in episode one. And so uh, you're going to end up writing wrappers for a lot of stuff. And then not only are you writing these stupid wrappers, but then you're going to your test and you're using some sort of mocking or faking library to write fakes for these wrappers that you just wrote. So well, it's like quadrupling your code. Well, here, here's what I was going to say is like uh, one reason why it, it, testing can suck is, is if you're not prepared for it, you might find yourself having to learn dependency injection and mocking and now you're like, oh crap! All I wanted to do is test my stupid ad method. Yeah, right. Right. But but if you have this is where like if you have code that has these dependencies in, then you you got to find a way to deal with it, right? Yeah, and it's gonna hurt. Or or depending on the scenario that you're wanting to test, if you're wanting to test, you know, hey, did uh, did this other method get called, you know, or not? Right. Then you need you need a mock for that. Yep. So one of the questions we've gotten here. Uh, is basically you know, for knowing if you're doing it right is uh, are you cursing your mocking library because <laughs> it's a it's a pain to mock it really is and yeah. I've seen some cool things with like structure map and you know some other libraries and uh, it's still pain even dependency injection it's still painful it's annoying you're going to spend time you well, know goofing around with your mocking library just to try and set well, up you, your structure test. map would be for the dependency injection yeah yeah but yeah. I've seen it with testing a lot for some reason um, I don't know why. Uh, also, uh, test coverage kind of sucks, and you're never going to get 100% for anything that's not trivial. What? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's really difficult. There's always going to be that one line in there, that, and like you're going to even gonna think oh, it's testing. You know what? I, I hate it because sometimes, depending on what tool you're using, that one line that you're referring to will be the curly brace at, right after like you yep. throw an exception, and you're like, well, of course that's not going to be called. Yep. I just threw an exception. And there's some nice tools out there, but I've, I've yet to find the code coverage tool that I completely agree with. Oh, <laughs> well. <laughs> I've written some stupid, stupid code in order to please that code coverage tool. <laughs> like things I would never normally do and I know are going to work, and I make the code uglier just to make sure that I can get closer. So I'm, I'm going to save it. I'm not going to talk about it right now because I got my one that I like. Yep. But we'll get to that in the tip we'll of the week. I, I don't want to tease it, but yeah. I'm going to tease it. And um, <clears throat> before we get into the resources, one other thing that I saw that somebody said, and, and I really like, is if you find a bug in your code, you should immediately Ignore write it. it. You, well, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that too. Sorry, you, you should immediately write a unit test before you go and fix it, and then that way you know that hey, we've got this covered for the future, right? That makes I, I a mean, lot of sense. Yeah. Well, that way you can test the before and the after. Yep. Right. Did I actually solve the problem or not? It, it's it's a great. It's just a great little tip that, you know, it gets you in the mindset of doing that. Yeah. So. And uh, there's always, a, you know, room for um Okay, I changed my mind. Too. I don't like unit testing anymore. It's too much work. <laughs> it's a lot of work. <laughs> but uh, there, there are people to help you. There are resources that will help guide you through this process. Oh, really? Please yeah. tell. What, what are some of those? A favorite of mine is The Art of Unit Testing by at Roy Oshrove. Uh, awesome book, and it's short, and oh, it's to the point. So awesome. And he really knows his stuff. So there was uh, last year, this time last year, uh, a year ago yesterday, he released the second edition of that book. And it, so the book is actually, has examples in C Sharp, but for all of our listeners who are not C Sharp developers, I can tell you it applies to anything. It, it The concepts in there he actually talks about other languages too. Uh, he, you know, but the examples are in .NET, uh, specifically in C Sharp. But uh, 
you know, he does talk about um, Java and Ruby and, um, but just conceptually, everything that he's talking about applies to any language out there, period. Uh, it doesn't matter. And it is a fantastic book. So we will definitely have a sh- uh, link to that in the show notes. Yep. Also, so, <clears throat> oh, yeah. You want to do it? I'll do it. Uh, I, I can do it. I, no, I want to do it. I want to do it now. No, I, right. I'm going to do it. Cool, because I kind of so I already hinted on this one, yep. and that is uh, do don't use MS Test. So resources we like, I, I threw in there. That uh, was not a hint, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> now, Roy Ostrom actually did yell at me on Twitter once for recommending MS Test. It's true story. I mean, it's kind of better than nothing. I was going to say, right? Like, notice I said kinda, <laughs> but I mean, at least it's there. But really. You know, use NUnit if you're in a, a .NET environment, uh, you know, or JUnit uh, if you're in Java. Or there's other there's are there are other ones in either environment. Um, yeah, I mentioned X, XUnit before. Uh, you know, whatever you want to use, just really y- MS Test. It's great that it's free and you know included in with your version of Visual Studio, but it's going to fall short eventually and you might not realize that pain until you've gone too far down the path of MS test. So if you can switch to in unit, it is recommended. Yeah. And also wanted to mention uh, earlier, we mentioned uh, in unit being heavily based on J unit, but um, also want to mention that J unit was based heavily on X unit, which was one of the, like the small talk first um, testing framework. So I think a lot of the things we talk about, like asserts and whatnot actually came from there. So just wanted to get that in there before you guys scream at us. <laughs> so uh, another resource that we like um, that, that I wanted to throw out there was in regards to how to structure your unit test. So I kind of hinted at this uh, earlier in the show, but we're going to include a, a link to this on hacked.com. This is Phil Hack's site, and he has this great article on how he uh, you know, grew to love structuring his, um, his, his unit test. And it starts off with, uh, the idea being like whatever the method is that you want to test, you create a class, a test method specific for that um, that class. And then for each um, scenario under test for that method, you create a separate uh, test method for it. So, for example, in my add method that I mentioned before, I might create a, a class called uh, you know add tests. And inside of add test class, I might have a method for um, you know, testing val- valid integers or um, testing for null, things like that. I might have different methods for each one of those use cases. But what I like to do, though, is take combine Phil Hack's idea here or that he documented here in, in his blog post that we'll link to with some of the patterns that um, I cannot pronounce his name, but Roy said in art of unit testing with how he liked to structure the unit test because Roy kind of expands on this idea that I think couples very nicely with the the concept that uh, Phil hack had documented, which is that in the naming of your method, Roy suggests that you name it in a pattern of uh, the method under test underscore The, the, I wasn't expecting that. So I'm going to start over. The method under test underscore. Uh, that's going to throw me off every time. The 
the scenario under test underscore <laughs> you was coming too. That's what it feels like every time I see an underscore in a method name. <laughs> and then the last part is the expected result. So you have three parts to your name. So normally you might not use an underscore in your method name, but in for these test methods, you name it so that it's um, method under test underscore scenario underscore expected results. So in the add result or the add method that I mentioned, I might have the add test class like Phil Hack had suggested, but one of the methods might be named something like add underscore valid integers underscore uh, expected. Um, returns valid integer as the as the name, right? And then that way, you 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 guys are looking at me crazy when I suggest this, but what ends up happening is that no matter what your test runner is now, when you see the report, you have a really good idea right away what was being tested, what what was being uh, what what the expected result was in the scenario, the method was being under test. So right away you get a lot of information just by looking at the name alone of it. And depending on your test runner, that might be very valuable data for you. And it also is very valuable because when, you know, some developer comes behind you three months later and wants to modify your tests, he knows exactly what you were trying to test for. He knows he knows the scenario that you were trying to test. So you were trying to test valid integers, and he knows that you were trying to you were expecting a valid integer to be returned back from uh, from the method under test, and he knows what method was supposed to be under test. So just from the name alone, the next developer coming behind you already has a lot of valuable information, right? So going back to uh, Joe's uh, reading the test as documentation point. Yeah, that definitely sounds nice. Although I, I gotta say, the <clears throat> programmer that's coming after you is most likely just going to unattach your test project if it starts breaking, <laughs> or they're going to comment out the test. They're going to return true. It's going to be green, and that's going to be it. Yeah, they definitely it just get commented out. This is the world we live in. It will that, get... that test failed, so I commented out. Now it's yep. now I can build. Oh, yeah, that, that makes me want the CI vomit. server. <laughs> the, the CI server passes. All right, sorry, I stepped out to the real world for a second. I'm coming back to test land now. I think you're jaded. <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> uh, so there are a couple of great videos on Pluralsight too. Um, what? Yeah, there's a there's a ton on test or testing in general, but um, there's two particularly I wanted to mention with uh, Scott Allen. Who? Not uh, that guy again. Yeah, if you're if you're on Pluralsight, <laughs> you're familiar with Scott Allen and also David Starr. So we'll have links to those. They're great. Cool. And yeah, now he's got tips. a few of them out there. Now yeah. it's tips of the week. What you got, Joe? All right, so first, uh, we're talking about different kinds of testing. Um, there's a podcast I just discovered on the security side of things called uh, the Defensive Security Podcast. And not only do they have the best intro music of any podcast <laughs> I've ever heard, uh, they're also locals, and it's a great show. So uh, you should check it out if you are into application security and keeping up with those sort of things. Yeah, Joe's Joe turned me on this one, too, and I, I have uh, really enjoyed it. Although I, I do say I, I am looking forward to someone coming out with the Offensive Security <laughs> Podcast. Hey, we got time, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, we can start recording after this, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be marked with an explicit tag. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, in the in the the tips of the week, um, you kind of hinted at this a moment ago, but when we were talking about coverage, I am a big fan of. Oh my gosh, I hate to say that it's another JetBrains product. Dot cover. Mm-hmm. I, I I'm a big fan of it. I like it. Your mileage may vary. But it's a great tool for being able to visually see what the code coverage is and you know, uh, 
not only can you, you can, okay, so let me describe this. You can see the, the code coverage in multiple ways. So in one way, you can see the code coverage from like a bar graph percentage kind of point of view, like, Hey, how, how is my, um, this particular namespace that I, that I'm working in, what percentage of that is covered under, uh, these, te these tests that I've been writing. So that's good information, but what's also cool too, is it's almost like running a highlighter over your monitor. You can turn on, uh, you know, one of the little buttons there. I forget exactly what it's called, but it's almost like a Crayola marker and it'll actually show you all of the code in green that is under test and any code that is not, that has not been run under a test, it'll be in marked in red. So you can visually see the paths that you have written tests against. And I'm a big fan. Yep. And also it produces an XML file that you can use with other tools like Endepend. Yeah. You can, you can take that into that output into Endepend and then, uh, you know, from your static analysis, be able to see coverage as well. Very cool. So my tip of the week is hardware based. Um, I just recently got the Microsoft sculpt ergonomic oh, keyboard, keyboard and, and, we one can never have last year. One, one can never have too many keyboards. <laughs> so I have uh, more than a small collection at my house at this point, and this one is by far my favorite so far. Um, it's got a key feel similar to like your MacBook Pro, but chiclet. it's yeah, it's it's the chiclet keys that have good travel. I'm not a fan of the function keys, which really stinks as a programmer. But Funny that you're recommending it. So here's the deal with the downfalls. It's still so freaking good yeah. that it overcomes them. Like it. And after, you're not a hard. You're not a, a mechanical keyboard fan, right? That's just Joe. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a huge fan of that because I don't really like the clickety clackety yeah, yeah, noise. Time for all that. I, I don't need something to wake up the neighbors, right? Um, it's the only exercise I get. <laughs> <laughs> the hammer action on your tipsy fingers. <laughs> I got strong fingers. Uh, oh, but, there's so many bad jokes. But uh, I'm here to tell you, like this particular keyboard. After you get used to it, it is just absolutely phenomenal. Like I can type incredibly fast. It's super comfortable. So um, that's my that's my tip of the week. So it's not like a rocket gaming keyboard. Wait a second. Hey, if we're doing these podcasts once a month, can we really call it a tip of the week? <laughs> <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Self hating podcaster. All right, all right, so he just unit tested us and we failed. <laughs> <laughs> we did. It's a good thing it's not I was automated. Go back out to the to the rocket uh, gaming keyboards again, but no. <laughs> well, uh, maybe, maybe we need some show resolutions for the next episode. Well, have you seen these? I mean, since we're on the keyboards and it is Christmas time, you know, and you might be like in the market for something. Have, have you seen the, the rocket keyboards? They look wicked. Rocket keyboards. Yeah, it's a uh, r o c c a t dot org. You can go out and you can find them. They have various keyboards, but. Uh, they have like a built-in pad on on the front of it. So, like, because picture like your laptop, right? It already has like a pad to rest your palm, and then you start typing away, right? What's the website? Rocat dot org. It's German. And uh, no, yeah. You, you so this page one. is rocat dot org. A rocket. Yeah, it says this page is in German. Would you like to translate it? Mm, mine doesn't do that. I'm you did something weird. You must have clicked on the language at the top. I did, at any rate, I just got to it. But there's like different illuminations that you can get for it too. And if you're if you're into gaming, like you can have different uh, keys illuminate different colors. So uh, it it looks wicked. I'm not saying that I I would go out and spend because some of these keyboards that they have are like you know 
$170, Like, I mean, you can spend some money on it. Oh, I've definitely spent more than that over time. <laughs> well, I mean, we were talking about the Adesso, I believe it was. No. No, yeah, not the, no, the, no, the, the, the Kinesis. The Kinesis, the Kinesis yeah, is 320 yeah, yeah. or 360 depending on so what you That's why I thought you, you, you might be like all over this one, but, but these are mechanical keyboards. So. And it's not Ergo. I don't want any part of this. Well, no. Yeah. <laughs> Joe, Joe would be all over this. Oh, I will give a tip on this though. So, uh, an additional tip on top of my other one, uh, massdrop.org. Hold on. <laughs> that might be important. No, massdrop.com. Go to so, White House. So, no, don't. <laughs> or, <laughs> uh, so, massdrop.com, this site is fantastic. So, I do a headphone review site as well on top of this. And they typically have things from audio file to keyboards. Which Joe, they have mechanical keyboards they all the, the time. They have the code keyboard on they sale. They do recently. have the code keyboard, and so Mastrop and the way that the site works is, it's like they just have certain number of uh, items that if more people buy them, then the price keeps going down. So, uh, you know, give them a check out. It, it's a uh, I, I really like the site and I like what they're doing. And uh, if you're into keyboards or audio file or headphones or anything like that, it's a good place to go. Yep. Nice. So with that, that's at the end of the show. So um, we talked a lot about automated testing and not automated testing and how it encourages good design and fast feedback cycles, uh, but it's very hard. So we hope you learned something. Yep. And well, I think we focus more on just the, uh, the, the the testing of it, not necessarily the automation of it. Maybe we can do continuous integration separate. And continuous delivery. Uh-oh. Hey. Oh, snap. Yeah. We'll have a whole pipeline of podcasts. Yeah. yeah. So, so, hey, hint, hint, you can look forward to that. So subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher and more using your favorite podcast app and uh, be sure to give us the reviews like we've said before. We greatly appreciate it. We'd love to hear the things that you guys say and and love to know that uh, you enjoy it. Yep. And also contact us with any questions or topics, anything. Leave your name, preferred method of shout out, which nobody does. It could be website, Twitter, whatever. Now, when and- we start getting some random questions because you said to contact us with any question. Then, uh, um, this is going to get awkward. We'll write you back like three weeks later. <laughs> yeah, I'm down with that, but whatever. And we'll mention you on the podcast. Uh, um, also, visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, which we have very good show notes in case you guys haven't actually been there. Uh, examples, discussions, and more. Yeah, and send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at codingblocks. And, and I'm not promising anything, but our show notes might include some time code. Yep, that's right. <laughs> Man, I don't even know why. <laughs> so they can skip the boring parts. <laughs> There's nothing Wait, boring. As what? a matter of fact, we're going to start mixing boring important part? stuff at the very first 30 seconds of the show. <laughs> Everything I say is important. Uh, all right, peace out. Hey, hey, by the way, Merry Christmas, everybody, because you know we're not getting another one in before. <laughs> <laughs> Merry Christmas, Happy Annika. What else is there? Uh, oh man, there's a bunch. Kwanzaa. Uh, I don't know, like all the other ones. That's why everybody just lumps it into Happy Holidays. Happy Holidays, everybody.